Welcome to Alchemist X, Innovators Inside, the official podcast of Alchemist X, the corporate services division of the Alchemist Accelerator. Alchemist X operates corporate programs for spin-ins and spin-outs. Here on AXII, you'll follow host Rachel Chalmers, head of Alchemist X, as she talks to corporate innovation's highest achievers and most compelling thought leaders. These are fly-on-the-wall conversations with leading practitioners in the field. They'll share their lessons learned so that you can accelerate your development. So sit back, relax, and get ready to level up. Today, it's my great pleasure to welcome Jez Humble. Jez works in site reliability engineering at Google. He previously co-founded the amazingly influential DevOps Research and Assessment, DORA, with Nicole Forsgren and Jean Kim. They conducted the annual State of DevOps report and also co-authored Accelerate, which is the essential book on how to increase your daily deploys. Jez came to DORA from stints at 18F, the legendary Obama-era federal agency that modernized a whole swath of digital services, and ThoughtWorks, the consultancy that employs about half of the smartest people I have ever met in the industry. You and I met at ChefConf, what, seven years ago now? And you made a point of introducing yourself because I was involved with the ADA Initiative, which is a nonprofit uh, supporting women's involvement in open technology. And I've got to tell you, it blew me away because even at the time, that was something I more usually had to defend than receive adulation for. And I realized immediately that you were someone who's already thinking about the ethical ramifications of the work that we do. Yeah, that's right. And thank you so much for your uh, work with Ada and the other work that you do on diversity, equity, and inclusion is very inspirational. That's why I do it, just to inspire. <laughs> <laughs> Can you talk about the, the challenge of centering humans in the work that you've done around corporate innovation? When I consider it, I divide it into two bits. Uh, firstly, centering humans as our users and our customers, and also centering humans as our employees as well. And those are two things that really get lost very easily in enterprises. So in terms of users, this was, for me, the biggest shift that I've seen during my time doing software delivery is making user experience central to the work we do, building it into the delivery process. It was something we focused a lot on in ThoughtWorks, not always successfully, but we, we definitely tried. I mean, I remember the very first ThoughtWorks kind of away day that we did when I joined in 2005. Uh, I went to this workshop by Luke Barrett, who's now sadly passed away, where he talked about user experience design and its centrality for Agile. And it, it really blew my mind. And I went to his workshop where he talked about doing discovery as part of the delivery process and never doing any delivery without first doing discovery. And these ideas that are now central to the way we work, and, and we use those a lot in, in 18F as well. Uh, a big piece of that was uh, user-centered design and, and bringing users, rather making users central to everything that we do. So it's, it's hugely important. And it's something I think we still struggle with as, as an industry, especially in an enterprise context where you just get so lost in being in your part of the process. It's so hard to actually move out of the little box that you're in. And so there's this piece of lean thinking, which is about this value stream mapping. And value stream mapping always starts and ends with the customer. And that's why I think it's so important to focus on value stream mapping as a start to any kind of transformation effort, because it, it again, it focuses you on, on the customer and, and how work flows from the customer and back to the customer. So that that's a big piece of lean. It's a big piece of agile if it's done properly. And there's still so much work to do. I think it's also important in terms of employees. And this is another thing that that's a pillar of lean is kind of respect for people. We still, despite, you know, 20 years of agile now, uh, I see this all the time in organizations where they're like, we're going to adopt agile. Everyone's going to follow exactly this process that's set out in this document and there will be no deviation. Rigid agile. <laughs> right. And it, it's like, well, well, actually the, the companies that are successful and, you know, we, we saw this at 18F in the US federal government and at Google, um, where I'm 
working now, it's all about empowering teams and creating cross-functional empowered teams where the decisions are made at the level of the work that's being done, where people have the most information. And this is still an area where there's there's so much to be done is working out how to create organizations that are humane and which empower people and, and create autonomy. You know, I still have McGregor's Human Side of Enterprise on my bookshelf, which came out in 1960, and uh, we're still not there yet. So I've got to say, I feel starry eyed about the early to mid teens. It felt like NASA. The amount of documentation that your guys pumped out around design thinking and, and human centered design that's, that's still on the web and accessible. I, I point startups and, and internal corporate teams to it all the time. But it was that whole idea of, you know, I talk a lot on this podcast about how a corporation is a group of people collectively hedging risk. And the US government is probably the biggest insurance operation in history. And when it's working as designed, large caveat. The exciting thing about 18F was that it was human-centered at the team level, and it was a huge hedge against risk at the governmental level. And that's kind of the dream for anybody who grew up on on stories of the Manhattan Project and, and the early days of space is, what if we could really use our technical skills in a way that contributed to some very large human endeavor? Sorry to get my starry-eyed geek on. No, I think that's I think that's absolutely right. And it was an amazing time. And this is one of the things that I find so depressing about our political environment is that, you know, when government works, it's amazing. And when it's done with a focus on empowering citizens, it's really great. It, it goes hand in hand with the idea of democracy, you know, the idea that it's rule of the people by the people that just immediately suggests the concept of citizen focused design or user centered design. And we did it. Uh, and we've done it again and again. Uh, and so it was definitely one of the highlights of my professional career. I think I've talked to you before about um, post-war, the book by Tony Judd, the Princeton historian, who put into context things like the Eisenhower Highway System and the National Health Service in, in Britain as reactions to the carnage of World War II, as ways of building societies that would maybe be more resilient against that happening again. And the real tragedy of our generation as Gen Xers is the very diligent work the neoliberals did in the 80s to dismantle the entire post-war consensus that had given, you know, in my case, a free tertiary education. And so many of us really were buoyed up by, by that infrastructure, which has, has since been taken to pieces. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, we all saw it happening at the time. Uh, I was yeah. definitely very active in student politics when I was at college, where again, like you, I got a free tertiary education. And I think we could see even then what, what was going on. Yeah, it's it's incredibly depressing. You know, I, I really worry about the, the future for my children. You know, I, I would like to think that we can turn it around. So yeah. Yeah. Still working on that. You've kind of half answered this already, but when you look back on your career, what are you proudest of? That's a difficult question to answer because uh, I think very day to day, to be honest, most of my work is based or prioritized on what's pissed me off most recently. <laughs> Um, There's nothing wrong with a career powered by spite. I think the best of us, like just try to throw it in the face of that one teacher who told us we'd never amount to anything. Right. For, for me, it's like people being wrong on the internet and then really really nursing whatever feeling I got from that. And, and it's an inexhaustible well because people are so wrong. So many people are so wrong they on just, the internet. They just keep being wrong. And then a whole new generation of people comes out every year who, who continue to be wrong on the internet. So uh, If we could harness wrongness on the internet as a source of energy oh my god we would have an inexhaustible supply it would be the true solar punk luxury gay space communism that we dream of 
<laughs> Our listeners should know that, that Jez just fell over laughing at my, oh, that's my brilliant. relatively weak joke. <laughs> no, I think you should drop the mic, Rachel. I think, you know, I think we're done. <laughs> okay, well, back, back to your question. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously proud of the, the books that uh, me and my collaborators have written over the years, and, and that's been exhausting. Uh, I never recommend writing books. I recommend having written books. Very proud of 18F. Cloud.gov, I'm particularly pleased with. That was something um, that was started before I joined 18F, but I was very lucky to be able to participate in helping to make that a reality. And the fact that we built a platform as a service in the federal government using continuous delivery with a team of uh, less than 10 people that was then subsequently used by the FEC, the US Air Force, signed off by the Department of Defense, Department of Homeland Security uh, and GSA. You can actually use modern, agile, continuous delivery, user-centered methods in the context of the federal government. So, I, you know, I tend to go on stage and be a bit of a dick and say things like, well, you know, we can do it in the US federal government. What's stopping you? But yeah, very, very proud of having been a part of that. Yeah. And just generally most proud when you get something done and then it turns out to be useful to other people. That's really living the dream. Yeah. What is it you think makes corporate innovation in particular so difficult? I've called it playing innovation on the highest difficulty setting. It's the fact that organizations that succeed in order to continue working as they grow have to codify things. And um, the culture that made them successful becomes both invisible and intangible and holds a vice-like grip on the organization. And people just see it as the way things are and they don't think about why it was that way and whether it's still appropriate. And I think that is the, the big factor is that the culture and the decisions that have been made and the way of making decisions put you into actually a very narrow groove that you can't really even see unless you're paying attention. So when people do see that, they often think, well, we have to change the culture. And that's really hard to do because the culture is the thing that made the organization successful. So you're saying, well, we should stop doing the things that made us successful. That that seems <laughs> that seems risky. And, and so that's really tricky to do. And then just on a very tangible sense, I think, uh, in the context of building uh, products in particular, you've also got all the enterprise architecture architecture decisions that have been made that, that prevent you from getting stuff done. But I really think, you know, when I look at organizations that are successful at innovation, it's because they're always trying to get better. Out of all the work that we did at Dora, one of the most popular was benchmarking against other organizations. People always love to see how other people are doing. And I really think that's a red herring. You don't actually, I mean, it, it is possible to derive lessons from comparing yourself to others, but I think it's more powerful and important to think about how can we do better than ourselves? How can we improve ourselves um, and dedicate capacity to doing that on a daily basis. And I think that is really at the heart of what makes organizations able to adapt and change in the face of a changing environment and a way to harness the skills and abilities of the people doing the work. I've long thought about enterprise architecture as, as archaeology because to a first approximation, no one makes terrible enterprise architecture decisions. They always make the best decision they can with the technologies available to them at the time. We just sort of level them over and keep building more and more stuff on top so that these all of these cities underneath the city, like London being actually 17 feet deep under the sidewalk with older Londons. So there's this element of civic engagement in a corporation where, you know, what makes a city great? It's that everybody wants to be there. What makes a company great? It's that everybody is committed to, to making it the best company that it could possibly be, even though they're standing on this 17 foot mound of, of other people's architectural decisions. It can be done. It's less a change of culture than a, a change of incentives almost, a change of what is seen as admirable and, and worthy of emulation. I mean, that, that sparks so many trains of thought in my mind. One is that people get into this mindset that, you know, uh, and again, caused by incentives, which is, well, you know, it's too hard to change the way we operate this, you know, enterprise system that is mission critical that we don't have the source code to anymore. And 
And like that is indeed a hard problem. But one of the things that I love about going to good conferences is seeing talks where people have just totally overcome that. So I went to a talk at the Continuous Delivery Conference in Seattle uh, pre-COVID where a couple of people from Ticketmaster gave a talk about how they had taken Ticketmaster's core system, which ran on VMS, uh, sorry, which ran on VAX, not VMS. They actually didn't use VMS. They used their own operating system because oh, wow. they built their own operating system. Their nickname for VMS was VAX Made Slow. It wasn't their nickname. That was what we used at Trinity College in the 90s. Really? Yes. No way. That's an old one. <laughs> I mean, VMS. Go on. I never used VMS. I haven't seen a VAX machine in a long time. (laughs) But I mean, VMS was a pretty revolutionary operating system, right? I mean, I've never used it personally, but I heard these amazing things about it. It was no Unix, but it was pretty good for what it did. Had a versioning file system. You could do like multi-site failovers with zero downtime. I, I heard this story that the Amsterdam police moved their VMS system from one site to another site with zero downtime, which I thought was pretty cool. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. Anyway, they have this VAX system that they built, which is how Ticketmaster processes all its tickets. And they basically moved to a a continuous delivery model, basically by running the whole thing on Kubernetes, which I thought was amazingly badass. And so like you can do it. And I've got loads of stories over the last 10 years that I've collected precisely because people say, well, that won't work here. We've got XYZ problem. And like the overwhelming message of the last 10 years of my career is it is possible. It's hard, but it's possible. You can do it anywhere. I've seen people do stuff with firmware. I've seen people do stuff with mainframe systems, facts, whatever, you name it, it's possible to do it. So I think one thing is like working in a culture where you feel empowered and inspired to to try new things and to experiment in a way that's, you know, safe to fail, obviously. That's one piece of it. And I really like your archaeological metaphor. I haven't... I, I, I stole it from Werner Vinge. I can't claim credit for this. Um, it's in A Fire Upon the Deep, I want to say, where our protagonist is digging down through his starship's computer systems and finds out that the system clock started at around the same time that humans landed on the moon and you're reading it and you suddenly go oh it's unix awesome vinge actually has software archaeologists who dig down through this stuff so i've i've been using that metaphor and, and not attributing it correctly well now you set the record straight um the other metaphor that i i really like for this is uh, the ecological metaphor so uh, martin fowler talks about uh strangler fig as a metaphor for architectural change based on you know if you go to tropical jungles they have these strangler figs growing around the old trees yes and- Yep. It's this idea that there is never a perfect state. And I think this is the, the fallacy that people face in enterprise ar- architecture is they're, they're looking for the perfect architecture. And there is no perfect architecture. It's always context dependent based on the problems you're facing right now, the goals you're trying to achieve and the problems you're trying to solve. And that's always going to change over time. So you, I think like accepting that there is no perfect architecture, that everything you do is contingent uh, and will be replaced. I think that that attitude is, is, is really important and insufficiently appreciated. And, and it's caused kind of a lot, I think, by turnover at senior executive levels. You know, some VP comes in and they put in place a two-year plan and they want to deliver it in two years so they can put it on their resume for their next VP gig somewhere else. And that that drives, I think, a lot of the shitty behavior and, and problems that you see in enterprises. I think that's very true. How would you distill all of these stories into, into concrete lessons for our listeners? You talked about creating an environment where it's safe to fail. How do you do that? How does that happen in practice? I mean, I, I hesitate to say it because it, it sounds like I'm being a bit of a dick, but what I've discovered through having children is that most lessons that I learned the hard way through consulting are actually about how to kind of take care of people. 
you're obviously very familiar with this since you have kids of your own. You know, you don't tell kids what to do. You model behavior and they copy it. And so much of effective leadership is just modeling the behavior you want other people to follow. And people spend a lot of time trying to tell people what to do. And it, it just doesn't work because people, A, they've got their own agenda and they've got their own things that they're passionate about. And, you know, you're not always going to be able to inspire them or, or influence them at a level that makes sense. All you can do is behave the way you expect other people to behave and live your own values and, and hope that other people see that and inspired by that, I think. That's probably what I aim towards, I think, not always successfully. <laughs> Even before we had children, I read a book by a British physicist, David Deutsch, called The Fabric of Reality. And I looked up his webpage after I'd read it. And he was part of a, a group called Taking Children Seriously, which was a movement about not using authoritarian methods in parenting. It was very much about acknowledging that children are time-shifted adults and the end goal of raising them is to have adults that you'd like to spend time with. And that was incredibly influential for me. And as you were saying that, I realized that it also became a part of how I interact with colleagues so that rather than assuming that someone who disagrees with me is, is stupid or wrong, I try to understand the context in which their position makes perfect sense to them. Yeah, I think that's that's absolutely right. And that, that informs a, a lot of, of my thinking around it as well. I, I haven't read that book. I, I should, I don't know, I can't read at the moment for some reason. My attention span is so screwed up by just for some reason it's, it's almost as if there's some cognitive load that we're collectively under what could that be so yeah i think uh, and also just because of my my personal background that that's the frame that i use all the time is trying to understand why people behave the way they behave rather than reflecting on their behavior uh, and that's useful just in in general in in life you know this is a conversation i have with my kids all the time when someone's been mean to them I, I try and reframe it as you know what do you think is is going on with that person i'm trying to help them understand that it's not about them when someone's mean to them it's not about you shouldn't take that as a reflection on you you should take that as a reflection on the, the mental state of the person who was mean to you and and why that is and i think that's a really useful frame for thinking about corporate life and, and professional life as, as well um the, the only problem with it is that it can lead to this kind of very anthropological kind of observer mindset and sometimes sometimes you have to intervene and i think that's another thing that i struggle with a lot is when to switch from trying to understand context and understand the forces acting on people to actually saying okay now we have to change what we're doing that's tricky i always find it almost a relief when when those moments do come when there's some kind of crisis and i know what needs to happen. I've done a lot of things like uh, neighborhood emergency response training and that sense of, you know, here's an anti-pattern and I know what the playbook is. I, I know if I step in here and, and run this playbook, you know, we'll we'll get to a better outcome. It's, um, I guess it's the adrenaline charge of just like knowing that that I have something to contribute in that moment. But yeah, my tendency is, is much more to be an observer. <laughs> yeah, and that, I mean, that brings me nicely onto what I'm doing right now, which is uh, site reliability engineering and, and what you describe is exactly what we do. You know, we, we observe situations and we observe contexts and then we create playbooks so that we can spot patterns that we have seen before and be able to act appropriately. And then, you know, you're acting back on the system to change its behavior and provide better tools. And, and that evolves the playbook as well. But there is something very satisfying about being faced with a crisis and being able to say, I, I know what to do. Or even if you don't know what to do, being able to say, well, here's a heuristic that will help me understand what's going on so that I can do something. Or being able to say, and now I'm going to get these people involved. It feels like you're doing something useful. And I think for me right now, that feels like a real tonic. It is. And I think it's one of the great unsung benefits of being mid to late career. I mean, you talked about all of the stories that you collected in 10 years on the conference circuit. Just being able to lean back on experience 
is something I, I absolutely didn't have when I was new in the industry. And it's such a relief. And I guess that's a psychological insight into why corporations are reluctant to change because they are resting on that body of experience and novelty is is a threat to that. Yeah, it's very comfortable. And, you know, this is what I tell my students. So, um, I, you know, I teach at UC Berkeley, you know, students often ask about for career advice. And, and there's a piece which is, you know, on the one hand, when you first start a new role, it creates a great deal of anxiety. You're thinking about, will I succeed? Am I going to look stupid? How am I going to learn all the things that I need to know to be successful? And that's not a nice feeling. You know, I, I certainly work really hard to try and overcome that. And then at some point you gain sufficient expertise that, you know, you can feel a bit calmer about things. And that's nice and it's comfortable and you want to stay with it. And I think it's really important to try and push through that and to then place yourself in another situation where you don't know as much and you put yourself you know, in a state where you're vulnerable again, because otherwise you stop learning and you stop changing things. But that's very difficult to do psychologically. And it's one of these places, I think, also where power structures are important. If you know, it's, it's harder for marginalized people to do that than it is for people like me to do that. And that's important to acknowledge. But you've kind of got to keep doing that both organizationally and as a human being. That's something I've tried to be pretty good about in my career, like going to 18F, for example. You know, the first three months I was put in charge of running their cloud stuff. And I had I'd never used cloud stuff in anger uh, or been responsible for it. And so it was terrifying. You know, I, I got the keys to these accounts that were huge accounts for major federal government agencies. And now I was in charge of them. And I, you know, I felt really scared and, and anxious that I was going to screw everything up. And it took me several months to get over that to the point where I was kind of comfortable. And then I just massively accelerated and was able to get like a lot of really great stuff done that I was, I was really proud of being a part of. But I think you've got to keep doing that in your career, especially in technology. Like if you go into technology with the idea that you're going to become an expert in something and then that's going to be it, I think you're going to be uh, seriously disabused of that notion uh, pretty, pretty rapidly. But you see people who aren't and who've been kind of doing the same thing for decades. And, you know, I understand that because it's nice, that feeling of being the expert and being being the best person in the room at that. But it, there's a danger associated with it as well. There is. I think the complementary pleasure to to the wisdom of experience is curiosity. You know, just the, the pleasure of finding things out. And, and when you're in a, a place where you don't have that cushion of experience, I've often found that exploring the systems and figuring out what fits with the other piece um, and, and mapping out the environment um, is its own dopamine hit and, and can get you through those those early days. Yeah, absolutely. How do you personally avoid burnout? Someone tweeted this recently and I'm just going to get the tweet up. This is a tweet from uh, Jennifer Kim, whose Twitter handle is Jen is typing. And she writes, common behaviors that get rewarded in the workplace, but often are actually trauma responses. Perfectionism, savior complex, never saying no, overwork, burnout. And then her follow-up tweet is things that don't get encouraged by traditional workplaces or managers, but are still important for you to practice. Number one, identity, self-worth that's independent of work. Two, trusting your instincts. And three, boundaries, boundaries, boundaries. Yeah. And I think that really encapsulates rather well both the contexts of, of why burnout happens and uh, how, you, how you solve it. I loved that tweet. It reminded me of those slides I always show to your students where I've got, here are the business books that all of the VCs are going to recommend to you to read and you should read these. And here are the books that I found really helpful. And it's like a whole slide of books about trauma. Absolutely. And that's been my experience as well, that I'm actually doing my own work in therapy and understanding um, how I can 
can do better. You've got to do that. So it's, I mean, so much of the mythology of Silicon Valley is about disruption and changing the world. And there's this quote from Tolstoy that I love, which is, uh, everyone thinks of changing the world, but no one thinks of changing themselves. Right. And that for me is, is the flaw at the heart of Silicon Valley is you've got to sort yourself out before you can help other people. And because so much of it is, you know, we live in a kind of late capitalism society where so much of what we're doing is giving ourselves up to the machine uh, in order to generate profits. And one of the phrases I'm really happy has entered the popular lexicon is self-care and this idea that, you know, you've got to take care of yourself uh, and that that is a radical act and which unfortunately it is in a, in a late capitalist society. So self-care and, and boundaries are a really big piece of that um, that I think is really important. Being able to say, you know, no, I'm not going to devote my whole life to work. I'm going to develop things that are important to me out for work context and I'm going to be able to say no to people and, you know, not in a mean way, but just say, you know, no, I, I can't do that right now. And I think there's things that can help with that if you do them properly, like, you know, OKRs, setting targets for yourself uh, and being able to say to people, well, you know, that doesn't contribute to any of my goals at the moment. So I, I can't help you with that. That's part of the culture of Google and something that I actually really like is that it's okay to say no to people. You know, not always. It's not always a safe place to say no, but and we actually have a structure, a bureaucratic tool that allows us to say no in a safe way. And I think that's just one example of an area where bureaucracy and process can actually help you. It can, it can. But, you know, necessary acknowledgement that a lot of these self-care techniques are unequally distributed according to levels of societal power. It's easier for you and me as white people with a higher education to say no than, than it is for other folks uh, in the tech industry. The point you're making about OKRs, though, is a really good one in that goal setting gives a person a certain amount of agency over how their time is spent. And going back to our discussion of trauma, you know, the clinical definition of trauma is, is being trapped in a situation to which you can't respond, to which your fight, flight, freeze and fawn responses are, are, are constrained in some way. And so that, that adrenaline isn't discharged. What are some ways that we can give autonomy and agency to folks in, in this context of, of late capitalist corporate innovation? Yeah, I mean, you remind me of a, a book that I read a few years ago that I really like called uh, Why Zebras or Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. Robert Sapolsky, a fave. Yes. Um, so he has this nice passage in there where he talks about how the best way to create anxiety is to give people responsibility, but not the authority to actually meet those responsibilities, which I think goes rather well hand in hand with what you just talked about about trauma um, and this is why I focus such a lot in my in my talks and my research on autonomy and building teams with autonomy and, and delegating responsibility I think that's hugely important a because it's what enables innovation the idea that all the best ideas come from the top of the organization is nonsense but that's basically what you're saying when you have a command and control culture so how do you best harness the innovation of your people and give them the tools to get it done well you, you that's not a problem you can solve with hierarchy it's a problem that you can only solve by delegating authority. So I think that is the important thing. How do you delegate authority but not create chaos? And I think that's what an effective bureaucracy does. It delegates authority without creating chaos. It creates well-traveled grooves that, or context that you can work within. And this is something I found in creativity in general. Creating constraints for yourself actually helps with creativity because it limits, um, you limit your degrees of freedom so that you can uh, have a structure to work within. And that's enormously important to, to be creative. And I think that's what effective organizations do. And this is something I see at Google, actually, that I really love. You know, when I joined Google, I wanted to take the research that we've done at Dora and, and, and publish it. And, you know, a lot of organizations, you'd have to go and get budget and you'd have to go and assemble a team and you'd have to create a bunch of tickets and get approvals for things. Well, at Google, everything is checked in to version control, all the configuration for everything. And so I was able to create a website and build it and I had to get approvals for all of my changes. But you can just do that at Google. I can create a ticket to create a configuration for a load balance 
cancer and uh, an SSL certificate. And someone on the team that manages that will look at my pull request and give me feedback or approve it, typically within 24 hours. And you can just get stuff done. That's incredibly powerful. But it's because we built this platform and there's loads of platforms at Google for doing all kinds of things um, that constrains you. Like you have to use the Perforce client basically to, to do this stuff. I mean, we've obviously got our own client, but it's, you know, you've, you've got to use the tools that we have. You can't use your own choice of version control. You can't use your own choice of build tool. You have to, there's constraints, but very well designed constraints that are incredibly powerful. It's worth thinking about. I just wanted to call back to, to your comment about command and control. You know, that's one of the places where it's worth thinking about why a command and control structure was built in the first place. And it was in response to the Manhattan Project. It's easy to look at the technological achievement of the Manhattan Project and go, yay, that was extraordinary. But societally, it was a disaster in the beginning of like an unending Cold War. And these weapons were so powerful. They were the literal distillation of the power of a state. You know, we're still in a world where no non-state actor has managed to build one because of the resources required. Thank God that you had to build command and control around them because they were so dangerous. So when you see a command and control hierarchy in the wild, it's worth asking, what is the dangerous thing that that hierarchy exists to protect? And I think usually the answer is it's to protect the power of the executives and the, the shareholders. Right. And conversely, I think one of the things that the fang companies, Facebook and Amazon and Netflix and Google have done well is they witnessed the 50 years of, of innovation and disruption from outsourced innovation that overturned giants like Sun. And they've created ways for startup-like structures to exist under the umbrella of the corporation so that engineers who in a previous world would have left to do a startup up and now getting the kind of career satisfaction and rewards from working within those constraints that they would otherwise have, have done out in the venture market. Yeah, I mean, tremendously good places to work in many ways. What is the best way for our listeners to connect or follow your work? I use Twitter a lot. Uh, you won't necessarily <laughs> learn a lot about my work through Twitter, uh, although I have been known occasionally to post about computers on Twitter. I have a site, continuousdelivery.com, uh, which has links to a bunch of stuff that I've done. Uh, I research program at Dora. A lot of that material is available at cloud.google.com slash DevOps. So we've published guides to all our capabilities, the last six years of state of DevOps reports, uh, and a nice little tool called the Quick Check that you can use to see how you're doing uh, and compare yourself to other people in the industry, as we discussed, and get recommendations for what you should work on in order to get better at software delivery. So a lot of that material is Creative Commons. Uh, I'm really proud of the fact we've been able to take all that material and research and put it out there in a way that is easy for people to access and build upon. An amazing resource. If you could wave a magic wand and have the most rosiest, optimistic, best future of our industry imaginable, what would that look like? The way my brain works, I tend to look at dysfunction and use that as a starting point to imagine the opposite. And the one thing that really pisses me off is that so much innovation is focused on corporate profits and, and engagement. And that really has been at the heart of all the problems we've seen. Social media has basically been focused on how do we engage people to, to keep making money out of them. And that, that's created enormous amounts of dysfunction. So I'd like to imagine a world where we use technology to fundamentally remove structures of oppression, where we use it to truly democratize society in a way that actually helps marginalize people 
um, rather than continuing to promote and reinforce structures of oppression. I, I don't know what that would look like because I don't think we've ever tried it. What I do know is that the only way to do that is to actually listen to and give power to marginalized people. So how do we build systems that do that? We don't know the answer yet, but I think you know there's, there's a clear path forward if only we would take it. And we've tried bits of it. I mean, you, you and I both grew up in countries where we had free college and, and single payer healthcare. And, and for those to be considered extremely radical positions now in the United States is, is a little bewildering. Yeah, it pisses me right off. Like radical socialism, universal healthcare is radical socialism. Okay. I would put the NHS in the class of those things that I get starry eyed about. I think it's one of the greatest human institutions ever created. Yeah, um, I, I talk about this all the time. I know you're not reading much at the moment, but do you have any Netflix recommendations, any albums that have been your jam? Yeah, I May Destroy You. <gasps> it's so good. It's so extraordinary. Just a really exceptional piece of art. It's so gripping and compelling and instructive. And I learned so much about humans in general and, and what consent really means and the, the many different ways that consent can be violated. Uh, Cole is just, just so brilliant. It does that very British thing of being extremely dark and very funny at the same time. Um, and I mean, it's gripping and compelling and just brilliant, uh, but also such a deep and powerful meditation on consent that is also so timely and it really forces you to think very deeply, I think, uh, if you engage with it. Um, so just like modern art in the greatest sense of the word. Really an extraordinary achievement. And despite the darkness of the themes that it deals with, really not cynical, really, it has a, a sweetness at its core that I found incredibly compelling. The backstory is also fascinating, Michaela. Cole, who wrote it, is a very, very young creator in, in the television industry. This is her second show. She wasn't happy with the terms of the first show. So she just went in and negotiated until she got the contract that she wanted. And when she didn't understand something in a negotiation, she would just keep asking until somebody explained it to her in simple enough words. So she's managed to create um, a position of power just through sheer persistence and talent, which is very inspiring. Yeah, she's kick-ass. I can't wait to see what she does next. She's so great. If you liked that, I also highly, highly recommend Fiona Apple's last album, Fetch the Bolt Cutters, similar themes. You know, my wife had like a whole month where she just had that album on repeat because she just found it so powerful. It really is another work of art. Jez, it's been a delight as ever. We should do this more often. Absolutely. And uh, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. This has been Alchemist X, Innovators Inside. If you enjoy our show, we'd be grateful if you could give us a rating or comment on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. You can find the transcript of this conversation, plus links to whatever books, articles, TV shows, and apps we talked about on alchemistaccelerator.com forward slash podcasts. If you'd like to chat more about our corporate programs for spin-ins and spin-outs, email us at innovators at alchemistaccelerator.com. We love hearing from you, so stay connected by following Alchemist X on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Until next time, this has been Alchemist X, innovators inside.